So I can still remember the moment in the job interview when I knew that I was toast. I had just graduated from college and had moved out to Salt Lake City, Utah. I was going to become an associate pastor at a church plant. And because the church was so new, they didn't have money to support all of us, so we scattered across the city and got jobs elsewhere. And so I was on the hunt, and I figured five years in retail, having just these amazing organizational skills, perhaps I could land a nice office job. And so I entered this medical facility, uh, interviewing for this job as a back office person with a lot of hope. I was pretty used to some of the questions by now, and so when I was asked the question, well, what did you like about your last job? Man, I just went on and on. I worked at Hallmark for five years, and though I hadn't paid a lot of money, it was a great place to work, and I just had so many good things to say. And then came the question that doomed me. Well, what didn't you like about your last job? And I had to sit there and think, and I'm like, I guess I'm supposed to answer something. And the only thing that came to mind was Beanie Babies. And she looks up at me, and she says, Beanie Babies? I said, yeah, Beanie Babies. I said, it was kind of this crazy fad where everybody was going nuts over these little fuzzy sack of beans. And I said, people kind of went insane. I said, they got pretty upset about them when they couldn't find one or they were looking. And I said, we actually even had a fist fight in the front of the store. I said, two men got so angry with each other over who touched a bear first that they actually took it out front and had a fist fight. And I said, so I guess out of anything, Beanie Babies, right? Now, I figured, ha, 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 funny little in, you know, anecdote here, we would move on. But I was so surprised by the next question. She looked right at me. She said, well, would you say you're an angry person then? And I said, um, no, no, I wasn't angry. Like, the customers were angry with each other. Like, they're fighting. I'm not, I'm, I'm not an angry person. Well, how often are you angry? I, um, uh, you know, by this point, like, you're, you're defending yourself so much that you sound totally guilty. And every question after that was something related to anger. And pretty soon, she just thanked me for coming in. I stood up, and I, in my brain, I was like, I've definitely got to keep looking for another job, right? <laughs> and I laughed about it then, and I even still laugh about it now because I think, oh, my, that was so absurd, right? I named a problem, and somehow... I became the problem. But when I started thinking about where we are in the present climate of our country and how costly it is to actually speak up about real problems, it's not so laughable. You are confronted with misinformation, data that is not interpreted correctly, and you say, excuse me, I, let me, let me call this out. And they're like, no, no, you're the one that's duped. You're the one that's messed up. You're the one that's the problem. You try to speak up about systemic racism in schools, in voting laws, housing practices, and you're immediately dismissed as being woke. You argue that, no, the sanctity of life starts in the womb, and you're accused of not caring for women, their bodies, or their rights um, to choose. When companies try to make statements about something that they believe in or something that they support, the other side immediately is responding. It's swift, it's brutal. The left and the right have just become masters at shaming, shunning, defamation, bearing false witness. 
It's as if the new MO, when you try to speak up about something or promote somebody or go for some sort of agenda, that you are called out and made the problem. So if this is what we risk when we speak up, why would we ever want to? And what is more, do we have to? And as I've studied our passage in Amos, I have become very convicted by the notion that I feel very passionate about a lot of things, but I've just not been willing to speak up because I don't want to upset the apple cart. But even more, I just want to save my own skin and just kind of stay in this protected shell. But we live in a day in which the church and the world needs a prophetic voice. So the question I ask you today is, are we willing to give it? And are we willing to pay the price that speaking up requires? Well, tonight our passage gives us a glimpse into the life of the prophet Amos at this moment in which he speaks up. And as we look at his message and the response to that message and what it ultimately means for each of us, I think it's going to have something to say. So let's first just look at Amos's message. Now, I don't want to rehash too much from previous weeks. Uh, Father Kevin has done a beautiful job of going through this book, so I encourage you, if you haven't heard previous messages, go back, listen. Uh, there's a lot there that needs to be rehashed through. But let me just recount a few details here. So first, Amos is a shepherd. He's from Judah, and as our passage tells us, he oversaw um, orchards as well as sheep. He was not known as a prophet. He didn't come from a prophetic household. So it's probably really unexpected when God comes to him and says, hey, I have this message for you to give to Israel. Go over and speak it. Now remember that though they had once been one kingdom, Israel and Judah had been ruled as separate kingdoms for quite some time. And so as we get to the book of Amos, we find that this is during the reign of King Jeroboam II, who is the 13th king of Israel. He reigned in, Jerusalem, or in um, Israel sorry, for 41 years. He was a successful king in that he had helped Israel actually recapture some of the borders that it had lost. But when you look at 2 Kings 13, it notes that God used Jeroboam to recapture these territories because of God's mercy toward Israel. They'd been getting decimated, and God says, look, I'm not going to wipe them out completely. And so he uses Jeroboam in this capacity to help kind of preserve the nation. But it says that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Because he never turned away from the sins that the very first king of Israel, the first Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had caused Israel to commit. And so even though it seemed like everything was successful, they had military power, economically they were booming, God wasn't pleased because of how Jeroboam had achieved and maintained the success. And so he sends Amos along to speak up against Israel. So here's Amos arriving in Israel, a prosperous, booming nation, and he stands up and he goes, whoa, time out, hold on. You think that everything is going so well, but Israel, you've been doing some terrible things. And here is the indictment that Amos brings. You have perverted justice by selling honest people for, for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. You trample helpless people in the dust you deny justice to those who are oppressed. You engage in sexual perversion and abuse. You wear stolen clothes and present stolen goods as offerings during your religious festivals. You cause religious people to sin. You tell the prophets to be quiet. 
Your women oppress the poor and crush the needy, all the while continuing to indulge and live lavish, wasteful lives. You brag about your good works and the offerings that you make, but you hate honest judges. You despise the truth. You trample the poor and steal by instituting exorbitant taxes and charging unfair rent. You oppress good people by taking bribes. You deprive the poor of justice in the courts. You rob the poor and trample the needy. You rush through the Sabbath so that you can get back to cheating the helpless by using false measures and dishonest scales. You enslave poor people for small debts and when selling wheat to the poor, you even sweep up the dirt and the chaff off the floor and you mix it in. Israel, Amos says, does not care for the poor, the needy, the oppressed, the enslaved, or the victimized. Israel doesn't champion truth, but rather uses the courts to oppress those that they don't like or they don't think deserve their help. They turn their backs on truth, and they actually tell the prophets to shut up. Israel brags about being religious, generous, and devout. But instead of being transformed into God's likeness, they oppress the poor. They pervert justice. They use stolen goods during religious ceremonies, and yet brag about the goodness of their works and the grandness of their offerings. It is a damning list. And yet Amos's first inclination is to call Israel to repent. In chapter 5, he says, perhaps even yet the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on his people. But as he continues prophesying, he notes that Israel tells the prophets to shut up. And as we get to the spot that's right before the passage we read tonight, we find that God says, that's it. I am pulling out the plumb line, and it is time to test my people. Now, for those of you who might not know, or it's been a long time since you've thought about it, a plumb line is a piece of string that is attached to a weight. And if you're trying to figure out if a vertical line is straight, you can put this line at the very big top of your, your line, the string, and as you drop the weight, gravity will pull it completely straight so that you're able to very quickly see whether it's good or bad. And God says, look, I am holding out the plumb line to see if Israel is still straight, if it's still aligned with me, or if it has moved away. And immediately when he holds up that plumb line, he says, that's it. I will no longer ignore all of their sins. The pagan shrines of your ancestors will be ruined and the temples of Israel will be destroyed. And I will bring the dynasty of King Jeroboam to a sudden end. Now notice, these are not Amos's words or judgment. Amos was given a message of warning. When that message was ignored, God announces through Amos, God is judging Israel because they have sinned against the poor and the needy. They have dishonored the Lord in their worship through greed and idolatry and injustice, and they have been ruled by a king who led them in doing all of this evil. So that is Amos's message. But what then is the response? And we have this interesting moment in the book because the entire book of Amos is in the first person. The sovereign Lord said to me, and then I said, and he replied, and I went. But in this passage, suddenly it's as if we pull up into the third person, and so we can start seeing all the things that are happening around as Amos is presenting his message. And here's what we discover. 
First things first, Amaziah, who's the priest of Bethel, he sends a note to Jeroboam and he says, Amos is hatching a plot right here on your very doorstep. This is intolerable. He's saying, you're going to be killed and the people are going away into exile. Now, let me ask a question. Is this a full and accurate account of what Amos has just said? Let's review. Amos. And the Lord says, Amaziah, Amos is saying, Amos, I, God, will no longer ignore your sins. Amaziah. Amos, the pagan shrines of your ancestors will be ruined. The temples of Israel will be destroyed. Amaziah. Amos, remember God speaking, I will bring the dynasty of King Jeroboam to a sudden end. Amaziah. Amos is hatching a plot right here on your very doorstep. It's intolerable what he's saying. He says you're going to die and we're all going to go into exile. Amos has just pointed out that Israel has a beanie baby problem. And Amaziah has turned around and said, Amos is the one with the anger management issues, right? And Amos has done something that doesn't come naturally to him. He has been bold in his obedience to God. He has gone to a sister kingdom to speak a word. And the response from the leading priest, who was supposed to actually help discern God's voice to the people, to lead them in righteousness, is to skip over the inconvenient parts of Amos' words. Notice all the parts that relate to Amaziah's own position. Religious practices, worship, sins, all of that is gone. But then he twists what is left so that instead of Amos warning the king that if he doesn't repent, God has said he's going to punish him and all Israel, Amaziah calls Amos a rebel and accuses him of hatching a plot to take over the kingdom. Well, that's first. Second thing, second, Amaziah tells Amos, just go home. But notice how he tells him to leave. First, Amaziah sarcastically calls Amos a prophet. He accuses him of prophesying for money, of being a professional prophet who takes money to say whatever the payer wants the prophet to say. But ultimately, he tells him to go home because Amaziah doesn't really care what Amos is saying as long as he's not actually saying it in Israel. But second, notice that Amaziah tells Amos, don't bother us with your prophecies here in Bethel. Why? Because this is the king's sanctuary and the national place of worship. Amaziah has just ignored everything that Amos says about their corrupt religious practices. And instead, he's boasting in the religiosity of Bethel in their sacrifices and their offerings. And he even claims that Bethel, which is supposed to be the Lord's temple, is the king's sanctuary. Old Testament theologian Danny Carroll says that by these very words, Amaziah and Israel's religion stand condemned because the clergy and the temple have been co-opted by the political regime. And yet Amaziah doesn't see the problem. 
Rather, it's on the grounds that Bethel is the king's and not the Lord's that he tells Amos to shut up. He never stops to consider if what Amos is saying has any merit. Rather, he turns and he twists everything that Amos has said so that Amos becomes the problem, not the greed, the dishonesty, or the injustice or oppression that marks Israel's actions. But now we get to notice Amos's reply. He says, look, I'm just an average Joe. I'm, just, I'm doing what God asked me to do. But since you've said, don't prophesy against Israel, stop preaching against my people, Amaziah, not only is punishment coming on the land, but your family is going to be destroyed. Your land's going to be divided up, and you are actually going to die in a foreign land. You may think that it is impossible for a nation that has just recaptured all of its borders, is doing so well economically that it can just suddenly be thrown into exile, but Israel will certainly become captives far from their homeland. Now, after we see all of these happenings, the scene shifts back to first person, and we see that the time for repentance has expired. God is going to punish Israel for their sins. And as if there's any question as to why, God recounts one last time the sins for which he's sending Israel into exile. You rob the poor and trample down the needy. You can't wait for the Sabbath day to be over and the religious festivals to end so that you can get back to cheating the helpless. You measure out grain with dishonest measures. You cheat the buyer with dishonest scales. You mix the grain you sell with chaff swept from the floor, and then you enslave poor people. Amaziah and all Israel tell Amos to stop talking. But remember, Amos wasn't the one talking, it was God. So when Amaziah and all Israel tell Amos to stop talking, they're actually telling God to be quiet. And the Lord acquiesces. He promises that a time is coming when the worst of famines would hit. But he says, look, it's not a famine of bread or water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea. They'll wander from border to border. They will search for the word of the Lord and will not find it. And guess what, Israel? Your youth, the ones that you are supposed to help take over this inheritance— Those beautiful girls and strong young men, they're going to grow faint in that day because they are thirsting for the word of the Lord. Sit with that for a moment. People will stagger, wander, search, but they won't find. As one commentator notes, worse than strong words of judgment from the Lord is no word from the Lord, but an ominous and foreboding silence. To receive no word from God in response to cries for help meant that God had hidden his face from them, rejected and abandoned them to their enemies. And seen. It's where our passage ends tonight, and it's not the happy story that we want. It's not the movie we want to go out and see. This is where 
our passage stops and where we are left to wrestle and to sit. So what does this mean for us? Let me just make four points of application. First, and I have to say this one, when finding ourselves on the receiving end of a rebuke, especially as it relates to our treatment of people, including the poor, the immigrant, the disabled, people from other cultural, linguistic, ethnic, and racial backgrounds, we need to listen and discern God's voice. Because if God is confronting us, we must respond with humility and repentance. It can become really easy to get defensive, to ignore what is said, to twist the words, to try to justify, to turn things back on the messenger by calling them the problem, accusing them of being a puppet of a particular political, religious, or other interest group. But friends, I beg you, don't do it. For Israel, this response led to a famine in hearing the word of the Lord. The ultimate punishment for rebuffing God's word is no word at all. People don't live by bread alone, Deuteronomy tells us, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. God won't stand for our mistreatment of the poor and the needy and the vulnerable or our stubborn refusal to repent when confronted. Which leads to our second point. We can be sure that God is on the side of those who suffer, period. Every indictment that was made against Israel related to their vulnerable treatment of people. To take advantage of others, to participate in the suffering of others, is to be an enemy of God. As one commentator says, if we want to be on God's side, then we have to choose the side of the poor and the needy. We are required to work for the best interests of the unprotected members of society, which in Israel's day included orphans, widows, aliens, the poor. If you wonder whether or not you're speaking up about the right things, you are on good grounds when you stand up for those who suffer and you point out something that is found on Amos's list. Third, as people who live under the reign and rule of Jesus, we are called to speak out against injustices, both in the church and in the world. Note that Amos wasn't a prophet. He was just this ordinary chap who tended sheep and trees. But in response to injustices, God calls him to leave his land, to go somewhere else, and to speak a message because at the end of the day, God says the exploitation of the poor and the helpless will not be tolerated. For us, this means that our personalities, our vocations, our preferences, perhaps our dislike of confrontation, cannot be excuses for not speaking up. If God is on the side of the poor and the needy, the oppressed and the victimized, then we too must be on the side of the poor and the needy, the oppressed and the victimized. We must speak out against injustices. We must vote to change unjust systems. We must stand up for those who are vulnerable and helpless. And finally, when we speak up, we must also expect pushback. 
people will twist our words, they'll attack our character, they're gonna call us radicals, they'll assign us a spot on the far left or the far right. They're gonna tell us to keep quiet. It could be brutal, heartbreaking, infuriating, isolating. But take courage that pushback does not mean that we're doing something wrong. The Apostle Peter says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourself with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. In launching his ministry, Jesus announced that he had come to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the captive and the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, and favor And that ministry led him straight to the cross. In being invited to take up our own crosses to follow Jesus, there are going to be times where we are asked to stand up and to speak out. And the fact that we're going to face some pushback is not an excuse for not doing this. When we name the problem, most likely we will become the problem. But again, friends, we can take heart Because as Peter also says, if you are suffering according to God's will, keep on doing what is right and trust yourself to the God who made you, for he will never fail you. Speaking for God will bring pushback, but God's commitment to the poor and the needy won't be stopped. When we join Jesus in his ministry to the least of these, we can trust ourselves to God, because he made us, and he will never 